Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 341, King Canute of England. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Camden, Amy, and Emily for signing up already. Canute made a lot of smart moves in a very short amount of time. He outlawed much of the corruption that had plagued the courts of Athelred. He scrubbed his new kingdom of the loyalists to Edmund Ironside. He granted important lands to his key followers. He executed the main claimant to the throne, Edwig. And, of course, he executed Edric Strayona. They're all smart moves. But few moves were smarter than marrying King Athelred's widow, Queen Emma of Normandy. Now, Emma was half Danish herself. Her mother was a Danish noblewoman named Gunnar. And that should come as no surprise, because the House of Normandy has deep roots with Scandinavia, reaching back as far as the Scandinavian Viking, Rollo. And the records indicate that Emma was proud of that Scandinavian heritage. And this gave her cultural common ground with her new husband, Canute. Moreover, it was likely that Emma could speak Canute's native tongue. And all of these things could make or break the foundation for a good political marriage. So things were looking good. But that was just the start. Emma's homeland, the Duchy of Normandy, had been a thorn in England's side for generations. And Emma's two sons by Athelred held claims to the English throne. And they had a close relationship with their uncle, Duke Richard II of Normandy. And that meant that Normandy was a serious threat to Canute's reign. Because at any moment, it could launch a war to restore the House of Wessex. That is, it was a serious threat to Canute until this marriage to Emma. All it took was a few wedding bells, and suddenly that situation was turned on its head. Instead of Normandy being perched across the channel as an existential threat, now the duchy was a powerful maritime ally that very well might be willing to go to war in order to protect its new Danish brother-in-law who was sitting on the throne of England. But one of the biggest reasons why marrying Emma was one of Canute's most brilliant political maneuvers was due to Emma herself. You see, Emma was a skilled political operative in her own right. She understood the courts of England, and she knew how and when to move the game pieces of state. And she was using that knowledge to help Canute secure his throne, as well as her own. In fact, it's very likely that the formal marriage ceremony that took place between Emma and Canute was Emma's idea. After all, she would have been the one who knew that enacting that specific ritual, of course, assuming that they did it in a way that satisfied the church, would have given her children a stronger claim to the throne than Canute's prior children from his union with Gifu. Emma was shrewd, but she wasn't just looking to secure her own children. She was also helping Canute secure his reign. For example, Canute made immediate moves to make sure he had the loyalty of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and that was very likely Emma's idea. Queen Emma was critical in helping Canute consolidate his power and secure his reign, even in those crucial early days. So in addition to being brought Normandy, which could help keep any rebellious factions in check, since they would likely have to stare down a Norman army if they got too rowdy, Emma also came on board as a brilliant strategist and advisor. But as valuable as her support was, 
it's likely that Knut's English collaborators were the ones that provided true stability for Knut's early reign. While the records don't discuss in detail that aspect of the English regime change, we do know that Knut had English allies who were working to help him secure and stabilize his reign. And we also know that this work was done quickly because it was only about a year after Knut claimed dominion over the whole of England that we start to see charters being issued by his court. And in these charters, we have fully fleshed out witness lists with a clear hierarchy that remains fairly stable, meaning that names aren't appearing and disappearing and moving up and down the list order. The same people are showing up to meetings and maintaining about the same level of status over and over again. And interestingly, these lists also include a mix of English nobles, and some of them even came from Athelred's old court, and they were accompanied by Scandinavian nobles who had come along with Canute during his conquest. And this mix between the two peoples isn't subtle either. We see both eldermen and earls appearing in the lists. And this was wise because he would expect Canute to keep some of his people close by. After all, his Scandinavian nobles would provide his court with a degree of loyalty that he really couldn't have expected from his English subjects, at least not yet. So their presence would have helped secure his position. But those English nobles shouldn't be overlooked, because they were the ones who provided his court with a sense of continuity. Not only that, but they would have known the ins and the outs of the culture, as well as the existing power structures. And this was knowledge that could make or break his reign. English noble support was critical here, and it seems that Canute was eager to keep them happy, because when we look at the land records, we see that many of these nobles had surprisingly large land holdings, and their high-ranked positions tended to be inherited by their sons. So Canute was being careful to look after those who supported him. And I can't help but wonder if these English nobles served as an inner council of advisors or perhaps even provided the king with essentially cram sessions on English politics during the early days of his rule. I also wonder how much behind-the-scenes diplomacy was happening, and how much of it was being guided by these courtly figures. Because Canute really did need that help. He had some serious diplomatic threats. And probably sitting towards the top of that list was the church. The church didn't simply hold a monopoly on the religious interpretation of day-to-day -day medieval life. It was also incredibly wealthy in its own right, and it had the ability to create not just spiritual problems for a king, but economic and military ones as well. If the church turned on a ruler, he could very quickly find himself at war. And that was a huge problem for Canute in particular, because the church had been very close with the House of Wessex. In fact, it was a bishop of London who ferried the children of Athelred and Emma to Normandy back in 1013. And it was another bishop who played a key role in placing Edmund Ironside on the throne. There were also church figures and abbots appearing in the witness list for Athelred and Edmund frequently and in significant numbers. They even supported the House of Wessex on the battlefield, including at Assendon. The House of Wessex had deep ties with the church. And it appears that some of those church figures were now in conflict with Canute. For example, the abbots of Eli, Ramsay, and Thorny, who were all courtly fixtures dating back to the days of Athelred, suddenly vanish from the witness lists. They reappear only when they had to act as vital local witnesses. Any other time, they weren't there. 
and this sudden shift in the record suggests a serious rift had occurred between the crown and those institutions, and a rift that lasted for the rest of their lives. In fact, only the abbot of Peterborough remained at court, likely because he had a close relationship with, wait for it, Queen Emma. Most of the other church figures from the witness list in the previous regime had vanished. Canute was sailing in treacherous waters here, and because he was from a different culture, navigating them would have been baffling. Furthermore, the skills that brought Canute to the throne didn't necessarily translate all that well to dealing with the clergy. I mean, he'd shown he was good at handling the nobility, and he'd demonstrated that he was perfectly willing to exercise an aggressive and bloody peace plan with the English nobles, at least with the ones who weren't bending to the new order. But that strategy wasn't exactly going to work with the religious authorities. It's not like he could invite the various reluctant church figures over to the palace and then, you know, have Eric Lathier execute them. I mean, I guess he could, but it wasn't likely to go well. Canute needed a different approach here. And so, as we mentioned earlier, Canute had given lands to Archbishop Liffing of Canterbury, and he had done so likely on Emma's suggestion. But at some point, it was probably determined that a simple bribe wasn't going to be enough, because we also have records of Canute personally traveling to Canterbury to deliver an edict that provided the archbishopric with a number of privileges and rights. And the archbishopric was giving particularly expansive freedoms and rights. Canute was looking to make friends. And to the north, we see Canute also courting the support of Archbishop Wolfstan of York. He took a different tact here. You see, when we look at Wolfstan's writing during the last several years, we see him looking back wistfully to the days of King Edgar the Peaceable. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in the code that Canute released in Oxford at 1018, he begins with a statement of the peace and friendship that he was seeking to foster between the English and the Danes. And in that statement, Canute promised to respect the laws of Edgar the Peaceable. And so just like the coins he issued, we now have a legal code that was deliberately linking Canute's reign to the Golden Age of England under Edgar. And I'm sure that would have appealed to the English broadly, but it was also pretty clearly fan service targeted directly at Wolfstan. It doesn't take a genius to see what Canute was up to, but pulling it off required a degree of cultural understanding and interpersonal knowledge that Canute likely didn't have at this point in his reign. So he must have had English collaborators helping him navigate this situation as deftly as he did. And it was deft. Because we soon see Wolfstan delivering energetic sermons on the English duty to show Canute their loyalty and fealty. Wolfstan was on board. And so, with the tender sentiments of the church being soothed, Canute was now able to deal with another of his major problems. The issue of administration. Now, Canute had delegated large portions of England to his closest Danish supporters. And by doing so, he demonstrated that he was going to be fairly hands-off with his new kingdom. So hands-off, in fact, that from the English perspective, he might have looked a bit like an absentee ruler. But while Canute was taking a rather Danish approach to overlordship and how he was handling the English throne, that didn't mean that he was completely disinterested with the administration of England. The fact was that he was still quite interested in the governance of the lands that he retained for himself, namely Wessex. But Wessex was old, 
and it had a system of administration that had been operating there for generations. And so here again, we find evidence of Canute's English advisors helping him navigate this transition. You see, for generations now, Wessex had functioned as a two-part territory. There was the eastern region, which included Hampshire, Berkshire, Sussex, Greater London, and that sort of thing. And then you had the western shires, made up of Wiltshire, Somerset, Dorset, Devon, and Cornwall. And fortunately for Canute, the Eldermancy of the eastern portion was vacant when he took the throne. And rather than keeping it for himself, and attempting to govern directly over a system that he was still learning, instead, Canute gave that appointment to a man he could trust. An Englishman who had come from an influential family, who had no love for the House of Wessex, and who was likely one of the aristocrats who had sided with Canute early on in his campaign to take the throne. He gave it to Godwinna, son of Wolfnoth. And you probably remember Wolfnoth. He was a captain of the English fleet. Or at least he was until Edric Strayona's brother turned on him, tried to have him arrested on the eve of battle, and then King Athelred seized his properties. And that whole experience caused Wolfnoth to look at his life and decide it was time for a career change. So he became a f***ing pirate. And he took his portion of the fleet and started raiding his rival's territories until he finally disappeared somehow, possibly being consigned to Davy Jones's locker. You know, Wolfnoth. Well, he had a son named Godwin. And by 1018, on Canute's orders, Godwin, the son of the dread pirate Wolfnoth, became Earl Godwin of Wessex. And for those of you who already know a bit of English history and are listening closely right about now, Godwin eventually had his own son, and he named him Harold. But that's far in the future. But here in 1018, in one quick act, Canute had rewarded the loyalty of one of his English collaborators, ensured that the economic engine of the region was governed by someone who understood the culture and politics of the area, and he installed someone who was probably in a blood feud with the House of Wessex. And that last part guaranteed that this new elderman was unlikely to start scheming with any claimants to the throne from the old dynasty. And Canute had managed to pull it all off with a single appointment. In fact, this was so brilliant that I have to think his local advisors had a hand to play in this. But that was just one half of his territory. There was also the Western Shires. Now, unfortunately, Canute couldn't pull the same trick over there because the Western Shires were currently being ruled by Elderman Athelweird, who was probably an extended member of the House of Wessex and old Elderman Athelmar's son-in-law. So you're dealing with a noble who was pretty deeply entrenched in the old order, but also fairly well politically connected. So likely, in order to keep the peace, Canute left Athelweird in place. But that didn't mean that Canute was leaving the territory alone. As early as 1019, we see lands in Dorset being given to individuals with Scandinavian names who have no previous appearance in any of the English documents. And that suggests that they arrived with Canute during his campaign. And this practice of giving lands in Dorset to Scandinavian supporters continued throughout Canute's reign. And looking at related documents, it appears that the local landed nobility of Dorset was steadily being shifted towards Scandinavian figures. And when we look at the records, these men often appear together in the witness lists, likely indicating that they were working together. 
In fact, their presence was so consistent that by the time of the Doomsday Book, we see references to Dorset Huskarls, which is a Danish term for household soldiers. Basically, the hearth were odd. And these figures appear to have been stationed high in the local administration. So what we might be seeing in these documents in Dorset was Canute rewarding his Huskarls, his Hartwarod, with lands in the nearby and influential city of Dorset. And in doing so, he was extending his influence into the administration and politics of the region, while also still allowing the existing eldermen of the Western Shires to keep his seat. And you might be wondering if he was doing that outside of Dorset as well. After all, it was a pretty good tactic. But unfortunately, we don't have this kind of documentary evidence for the other shires, so we can't say precisely what else he was up to in the West. But it is clear that Canute was active during this period. But interestingly, while Canute was playing diplomat and winning over or installing allies, there is a key part of English political and diplomatic life that suddenly goes quiet. The royal charters, which had flourished during the reign of King Athelred, all but vanish. Canute represents a nadir for English charters. And that's a fascinating shift, because we're left asking the question of why did this happen? Well, it is possible that Canute was putting his money where his mouth was, and that he was delivering on his promise to curb the worst abuses of the reign of Athelred. After all, many of those lands that were getting shuffled around were because Athelred and his friends kept nicking them from disfavored individuals, or widows, or just hapless monks, and then were handing them out to court favorites. So maybe the royal charters stopped because that practice stopped. It's possible. And already in his reign, we have seen him allowing lands to pass to the heirs of the deceased, even to heirs of people that he had put to death, which is something that would have been incredibly hard to imagine happening during the reign of Athelred. Athelred would have kept those for himself and then handed them out via a charter. So that is one possibility. However, we also know that lands were still being granted during this period. Canute was settling his companions, and he was also securing loyalty of key figures through land deals. And because of that, there is another way to view this sudden reduction in charters. You see, the decrease in charters actually starts during the last few years of the reign of Athelred. And it was happening right when everything truly started to fall apart. So this has led some scholars to suspect that a reduction in charters might actually reflect a lack of stability. After all, trying to hold together a failed state requires a ton of work, and any needed land grants could just as easily be handed out by an underling, while the king stayed busy trying to, you know, not get dethroned. The truth is that it's hard to say precisely why the flow of charters appeared to have been choked off during this period but it is clear that there's more going on behind the scenes than we're being told. But what we can see shows Canute rapidly changing his role in the kingdom, from conqueror to politician. And between Emma and his English advisors, I think it's likely that Canute was accomplishing this because he had developed a team of cultural and political advisors to supplement his battle-hardened Scandinavian earls that had come to court with him. And it was likely through their help that in 1018, Canute felt secure enough to start dealing with the other problem that had been looming over him since the treaty with Edmund. You see, Canute had come to England with an army. And while some of the higher-ranked members of that army had been rewarded, the bulk of the forces, the common soldiers, well, they were still waiting. 
And these were the fighters who would put him on the throne. And if Canute didn't pay them, they could take him right off it. But it seems that the actions of that first year had given Canute enough confidence to enact a tax on the population. And the fact that it took him over a year to do this makes me think that the timing was strategic. And it wasn't until 1018 that he felt that he could get away with it. So now that he was secure, he sent out his tax collectors. And he sought to raise 72,000 pounds of gold and silver from the general population of England. And another 10,500 pounds of gold and silver from the people of London. Because London appears to have really pissed him off. Now this money was raised quickly. And the speed of the collection was sure to have been an additional trauma for the English. And while taxes of this nature aren't uncommon for conquering rulers, it can't have escaped anyone's notice that this was ostensibly another Dane guild that they were being forced to pay. And after decades of ravaging, war, Dane guilds, and just general rank mismanagement, this last tax must have been like squeezing blood from a stone. In all likelihood, churches had to strip precious metals from their altars and other holy places. Crops and livestock were likely seized at higher rates because the nobility could trade them and then turn that into much-needed gold and silver. Nobles would have had to dip into their coffers and sell possessions. Peasants likely had to go hungry. Really hungry. This bill was so high that everyone would have taken a serious hit. But what choice did they have? There was a giant army camped outside of London that could start raiding and pillaging any time they wanted and they would if they weren't paid. Furthermore, this tax was being raised by the king, so if any of the nobles refused to pay it, they'd know that they'd be expecting a royal visit from a conquering king any day now. So, the money was raised, and King Canute paid his mercenaries what they demanded, and then they boarded their ships and sailed for Denmark. Though Canute did retain a fleet of 40 ships when they left, because he wasn't stupid, but think about what Canute just did here. The tax was brutal, but he had just pulled off the one feat that English kings had failed to do for generations. He'd managed to get a Viking army to leave England for good. Not only that, but they had managed to go two years without any Viking raids. Two years. So while the tax had been brutal, Canute might have looked like something of a miracle worker here. And as for King Canute... Well, now that that mercenary army had been paid, he could finally relax. His hold on England was secure. Not only that, but thanks to the fact that Denmark was being ruled by his brother, King Harold II, he really didn't need to worry about further Viking fleets, nor great heathen armies, or any of the other things that had plagued England for centuries. Furthermore, his fraternal bond actually further secured his throne from exterior and interior threats, because if anyone sought to overthrow him, Canute could call on his brother in Denmark. And actually, he could also call on his brother-in-law in Normandy. And the best part of this was that he also wouldn't have to deal with Danish politics for any of these advantages. As we talked about in previous episodes, Canute's family were newcomers to the Danish throne. And Denmark was a notoriously unstable kingdom. I mean, this kingdom was so rough that their father, Swain Forkbeard, had turned to England in an effort to bolster his position on the Danish throne. Danish politics were a mess, but that wasn't Canute's problem. Harold was the one who had to keep all the rival Jarls and grasping Viking adventures in check. He was the one who had to balance all those interests, while also avoiding falling prey to a civil war. 
All Canute had to deal with was England. And thanks to the support of his English allies, not to mention his Norman allies and his brother in Denmark, Canute's hold on England was at last secure. And then a messenger arrived from Scandinavia. King Harold II of Denmark had died. Now, how he died remains an open question, because actually we know almost nothing about King Harold II. But there is one document that was written about 200 years later, called the Annals Riensis, and it tells a surprising story. It claims that when King Swain Forkbeard died, the leading men of Denmark wanted Canute as their new leader. But since Canute was absent, serving in England, they had no choice but to accept his brother, Harold. But they hated Harold. And in particular, they hated that he was effeminate and a hedonist. So by 1018, the nobles of Denmark rebelled against King Harold, and they deposed him. And sometime after that, or maybe during the struggle to remove him from the throne, Harold died. Now, it's important to note that this is the only document that discusses Harold in this way. No other source mentions Harold's personal predilections, not his behavior nor his sexual preferences of any kind. And because of this, modern historians looking at this document have generally treated it as slanderous gossip rather than an actual record of events. And it very well might be. However, it is our only record of how Harold's reign came to an end, so I'd be remiss not to mention it. Moreover, older historians weren't so measured in their assessment of this record. And because of it, there's been a long assumption that this document says that Harold was ousted from the throne because he was gay. But there's something to keep in mind about this. Effeminate in this context doesn't necessarily relate to gender or sexual orientation. It might mean exactly that, but there is another meaning that is entirely possible. You see, by calling Harold effeminate, they're literally making the case that Harold was womanly in the medieval mindset. And that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with behavior in bed, clothing, sexual preferences, or mannerisms. It's really important to remember that the charge of effeminate is just an umbrella term for anything that's womanly. Basically, it's shorthand for misogyny of all kinds. And in this case, the comment came paired with Harold's desire to seek pleasure. So if this record is true, what might have upset the Danes was that Harold was a bit of a partier. He may not have done anything that we would see today as particularly feminine from a modern context. But for medieval Europe, with a few exceptions, pleasure-seeking was seen as a distinctly feminine quality. And I know, dumb, right? But the fact is that misogyny doesn't have to be coherent, because it isn't about logic. It's about feelings. Stupid feelings. So yeah, apparently enjoying things is girly, and if you want to be manly, then you can't, you know enjoy life, which actually kind of explains the manosphere. But regardless of whether or not Harold was a Scandinavian Dr. Frankenfurter or a Viking Chad or whatever, the fact is that he was now dead. And on just a human level, that must have been really difficult on Canute. He was probably still in his 20s at this point, and all he had left of his family now was his sister. Furthermore, given their ages, it's unlikely that Harold's death was expected. And based on the information that were given in the praise, it seems that the two brothers were quite close, even traveling together when their father died. Canute even appears to have had his brother added to the gospel book at Christ Church in Canterbury. They seem to have loved each other. 
and now he was gone. So this would have been a really difficult time. But it also meant that he was next in line for the throne of Denmark. And that was its own kind of stress, because Denmark was a political nightmare. But then again, free kingdom. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and you can find a bunch of resources as well as membership sign-up and a bunch of communities by going to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and poking around. Thanks for listening. 